Well, we're going to be in John 4 this evening, if you'd like to turn there. John 4, 46 through 54. That's on page 1057. But um, in this sermon series, we're going through the signs of John. There's seven signs. And so we're going to be skipping through some of it. And I just want to really quickly, before you read this, cover a little bit of what's happened since John chapter 2 at the wedding at Cana. The main thing that's happened here at verse... Chapter 2, verse 13, it talks about the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. After performing the miracle at the wedding at Cana, he went up to the Passover and performed many signs there. But essentially, the people were going to make him king, were seeking to make him king, and the leader of the people wanted to kill him because he was taking the people from them. And of course, God has everything in his own timing. And as he speaks about much his hour, because his hour was not yet, he withdrew then to Galilee, which is where we're going to find him. But before that happens, he talks about this in chapter 2, that he knows all people. And after John records that, he also goes on to record three accounts. The account with Nicodemus in chapter 3, he knows the heart of Nicodemus. The woman at the well in chapter 4, and also now this man, this official at the end of chapter 4, which we're going to read about. In each of these cases, there is an instance where he confronts them. They have something that they're desiring or seeking, and Christ confronts them in a way. So we're going to see that as well this evening in the official son. But he he makes his way down into Galilee, and we'll we'll talk about that as we go through. But that's where he meets the, the woman at the well as well in Samaria as he goes back to Galilee. So let's pick up here at John 4, verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. So I want to note something off the bat here about this passage. And it's similar to a comment that, in fact, it's the same comment that I made last week about the wedding at Cana. And the comment is that if you have a red letter Bible, you're not going to see many red letters in this sign. In other words, in the next sign that we're going to look at in John chapter 5, Christ has a very long explanation of that sign. Here we don't have that. And so again, we have to look at what details we're provided with in this passage. Last time we looked at the purification jars, we looked at water, we looked at wine, we talked about the wedding. And here, if you look at it, what do we have to look at? Well, most of this is dedicated to this man. So we're going to look at this man. And as I said before a little bit earlier, this man comes with an intent. And then he comes face-to-face with Christ, and there's a sudden change, and he believes. And so tonight we're going to look at why this change, 
And that's why the title of the sermon tonight is The Second Sign. Jesus reveals himself as the word of life. And we're going to look at that in two points. Point number one, Jesus reveals himself as the word of life to a desperate man. And point number two, he reveals himself as the word of life by his word and confirms it with a sign. And really, in the first point, we're going to spend time looking at this official. And in the second point, we're going to look at Jesus. So point number one, this desperate man. Who is this man? And I also want to look at who he is and how does he respond to Christ. So let's read 46 to 47 for who is this man. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So who is this man? The commentaries all agree, all the commentaries that I looked at, that this man is a court official. He's a politician, and essentially he's a middleman for Herod. And they all believe that he would be Jewish, because it was normal for, for, for Rome to take from within a people group and make leaders out of that people group because the, the people would trust them more and they would understand their customs and things of that nature. But really, those people were um, obedient to Rome. So this, this man was a middleman. He was a politician. But he was Jewish, and that's important too, because at that Passover feast, all the Jews would go down. There would be hundreds of thousands. So he probably was there or was very familiar with the signs that Christ was performing. It's also likely that he would be very rich or rich and powerful. But I think even more than that, it's important that we see that this man is a desperate father. His son is at the point of death. Now, for many of you, I'm sure that you have in your life, unfortunately, had to come across that point of death. Even for little kids, there was some talk this morning of, of a fish that had died this week. And even for little kids, there's the understanding, even with a fish, but even more with maybe a dog or something, we understand what, it, what it's like when death comes and where this father might be, because there's nothing we can do when that happens. If I can give you a quick illustration, when I was about 18 or 19, and I was in Arizona at school, Anna and I were dating, and um, I got a call at night from my mother, and she said that my father was in the hospital, and he had uh, a massive um, aortic dissection, so basically uh, part of his heart had ripped, had torn, and this was quite a while ago. They didn't have some of the technology they do now. But my mom had to give me the difficult words that, what, the words that she was given by the doctor, which was that his blood pressure was so high that even were they to be able to close the, the wound, they don't think that, that that blood pressure would be, that the blood pressure would break the, what they're doing in there. They, they said literally that they had never seen blood pressure that high before. So they told her that there was no way that he was going to be able to survive the night. And I remember at that time getting those words from my mother, and it just hit me like a wall. And I think I said something to her like, there's nothing that can be done. And she said, no, there's nothing that can be done. And that's what it's like when we're hit by the truth of death, that it, there's an end of life. Now, I just want to say, praise the Lord, that my father is actually with us today still. And he healed my father just like he healed the son of this official. But that being said, this is a desperate father. And so when he comes down to, to ask, when he, when he comes to Christ and he says, sir, come down before my child dies, really it's brought up twice in this text. 
I believe this man would say that no matter what I do, I'm not going to go home unless this worker of miracles comes with me to heal my child. You can imagine the desperation that he has. Now, in general, when I, when I looked at this passage, I've read it many times, but normally I, just, I admit that this is not a passage I spend much time in. And in a lot of ways, it seems like a simple passage, a man coming and asking for healing. Christ heals and he believes. But when I'm reading it, imagine if you're reading this devotionally, I might get a little bit confused and frustrated with Christ's rebuke at verse 48, where he says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's one of those things that really sticks out. What do we make of that part of the verse? But that is, of course, a very important part. So I want to look at this rebuke, and I want to look at this interaction between Christ and this man. And, I, and there are two stages. One of them, the first is the rebuke, and the second is where Christ says, go and your son will live. So first, let's look at the rebuke. What do we learn from that? Well, in the original language where he says, <clears throat> unless you see signs and wonders, when he says you, that's actually plural. So in other versions, it's translated as you people. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. <clears throat> so he's including him in a group. He's talking to the man, but you could imagine there would probably be others around him when this man came up. So Christ here, we talked about the commentaries. The commentaries talk about this man as a politician. But, but Christ tells us in this passage who this man is. He's grouping him with the others, the others in Galilee. When it talks about here, uh, just before this, it says that um, Christ left and went to his hometown. And he notes that those in his hometown do not honor the, uh, the prophet from that hometown. So Christ is now grouping him in that category of people. In other words, this man is seeking a miracle, a sign, healing for his son, but he's not seeking Christ, the miracle worker. And so Christ is now rebuking him for that, as well as the people. And what we're seeing here as well in this rebuke, just like we saw with Mary last week, is that there are two intentions, and, and this is, happens often in John, and, and same with these other accounts I mentioned earlier, the woman at the well, and especially with Nicodemus, there there are two intents happening here. This man, desperate for his son, is seeking temp temporary healing for his son. And Christ is seeking eternal life for him. He's saying to him, what you really need is to believe. What you really need to do is to see me. But if we look at the, the, uh, the man's response to this rebuke, that's also very telling. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Or in the original language, it could, could be translated, you will never believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies, which, he, which it said in the verse just before that. So he's ignoring his rebuke, in my opinion. I think you can see in the desperation in his voice. Sir, you must come down. He's ignoring him. And I thought a little bit about that when we're rebuked. We don't get rebuked often. Um, it happens in marriage, in a good way, in marriage. But when, when do we ignore rebukes from people? And that, hap that tends to happen in arguments. When two people tend to be talking past one another, there's a rebuke happening, but both people have a, have a stubbornness in their will that this person wants to be heard and this person equally wants to be heard. Now, of course, we know that the best if, the, if both can have a, a servant attitude, then there can be healing in the relationship. But until that happens, when both have a stubbornness, I want to be heard and I want to be heard. 
then, then you have this kind of missing of these intentions. And that's what's happening here with this man. Christ is telling him, you need eternal life. You need to believe. And you will never be able to believe in your own ability. But the man is ignoring him. And he's saying, no, I need you to come down. This is why I came. You must come. Before, he's before God, who is creator of all things, creator of all life. He, he heals everyone at all times. But he's trying to... He believes that he needs to do something. And I think as a parent, it's so relatable. Because I feel the same way a lot of times, that, that I feel like I need to add something to what God is doing. An example could be, I'm, I'm guilty of this, that when you think about your children, you think about their salvation, maybe you see a sin pattern or something in your kids, and you think, as a parent, I need to help that child to even rid themselves of this sin pattern. And if I don't, I don't fail. If I fail in that, then, you know, I'm praying that their salvation, that they would have salvation. And that's the same thing here, that we feel that we have to do something when God is saying, look at me. Even if you're, even if you're older, you have older children and they're, they're walking away from the Lord, it's the same thing. You know, you don't want to think, what did I do? What should I have done? It doesn't add anything to be awake at night thinking about that. Rather, just like this man standing before God, look at the Lord. Look at the Lord, especially if your child is baptized. What promise did he make? We could think about doctrine and say, oh, well, you know, we know that it's possible for someone that's baptized to walk away from the Lord. But is that what God wants us to see in his promises? We need to look at God himself, and we need to stop asking, what can I do or what did I do, but have everything in the Lord. And the second part of this conversation, after this rebuke, where Christ says, go, your son will live. I just want to ask the question, I thought about this as well, did the, did the official get what he wanted? You know, was he stubborn enough? He kept asking, come down. Christ rebukes him, no, come down. Are we to take away that we should wrestle with God, that God needs to, we need to wrestle his blessings out of his hand? Well, of course not, right? But actually, it's not God or Christ who changed, but the man who changed, and that's so important here. Because his goal was to bring Christ down for the healing. It was common that the, that the, the worker of the miracle would be around the miracle. So this, this morning we heard about Moses, he was down near the Nile, and he put his rod in, in denial. So this man, his intention was to bring Christ down to heal. But what actually happens is he goes away by himself. And the other thing is that he was seeking a sign. He was seeking for the healing to happen. That was his intention, his goal. But again, what, what, when does he leave? There's no sign that has been done. There's no miracle to his knowledge but the word of God. So he comes seeking a sign, but he leaves with just the word. And he comes to bring Christ down, but he goes away alone. So something has happened in this man to change him. So I asked, who is this man? He's a desperate father who is seeking a miracle alone and not seeking the miracle worker. But as you see this change happen, we also can note that he is a lost sheep. And he's just heard the voice of a shepherd. So let's look at that in point two. Jesus reveals himself as the word of life, 
by his word and confirms it with a sign. So in this point, I want to look at Christ and what, what did this man see in Jesus. But before we do that, I want to also ask, what is this change that occurred? Because Jesus didn't make an apology to this man, meaning he didn't make a defense of who he was. In fact, all he says was, was, unless you see signs, you will not believe. So he rebukes him, and then he says, go, your son will live. And what does it say? The man believed. He said, you, you, unless you see signs, you will not believe, but he believes without seeing a sign. So what happened? Well, on the outside, nothing happened. And, and, may, and maybe people who saw this would be confused. Maybe they thought it would amount, I mean, this is, a, this is an official, maybe they thought this would, would escalate. But in John chapter 3, where Nicodemus, who, like I said, Christ knows the heart of all men, came to Christ, trying to seek how he could, in a sense, pull Christ down in a similar way that this man is, to believe on his own understanding. Maybe Nicodemus, I'm sure he was a smart man. But Christ describes faith as wind. And what is it about wind? But that wind can't be seen. And that's what Nicodemus, he's, he's struggling, he's struggling. And Christ is saying, Right away, he says, you can't do it, Nicodemus, yourself. The Spirit is an invisible force that works. But the other part about wind, especially if you're familiar with tornadoes, the damage tornadoes can cause, we don't know what it is. We can't see it, but we see the effect of it. And that's what we're seeing here. There's not a long, like I said, there's not a long explanation from Christ of who he is, but there is an obvious change in this man's heart. So what are we seeing? We're seeing the work of the Spirit. In that same chapter in John 3, Christ talks to Nicodemus about being born from above. And the interesting thing about being born, being born again, is that it's not something that you have any say in. You can't choose to be born. You can't choose who your parents are going to be. So being born again is an, is an entirely passive action. And so that's what we're seeing here as well. This man comes down actively wanting something from the Lord, actively saying, I'm going to take this. But the Lord opens his heart. He gives him belief. So we're, we're seeing belief. Now, was this man a believer before this time? That, that's technically possible. That may sound counter to what I've just been explaining. But the truth is that don't we go through the similar thing often? Where we have unbelief in our life? Where Christ will speak to us and we'll ignore him? Certainly what we're seeing here is unbelief and, and belief than Christ making belief in this man's heart. So secondly, I want to look at in this point, why the change? What did this man see? And in John 1, John tells us that they have seen the glory, the fullness of the glory of God in Christ, and that it's full of grace and truth. And I kind of want to look at that through that lens tonight at what this man would be seeing in Christ. And just as a, um, as a reminder, we talked about glory. I gave the illustration about the sun rays and the sun. That the sun rays communicate to us what the sun is. It's warm, it's bright. And in that sense, that's what Christ does for us too. He's very God, and he is the clearest image of God to us. And John calls out particularly grace and truth. And so I want to talk about that a little bit. Grace which you could say as unmerited love, the unmerited love of God. And how did this man see that? Well, what's the first word that he says to this man? But life. 
He says, go, your son will live. And of course, we know this as well, that this is not just hope of life. If, if you have someone going to the hospital and a doctor tells you it's a pretty good chance that things are going to go well, that's a wonderfully comforting, but that's just hope. But this is factual. This is reality. The word of life that he gives, your son will live. But not only just life, and as we said last week as well in John 10, life and life abundantly. Because what does he give to this man, too? He heals a son, but more importantly, he gives faith to this man. He gives faith to the family. So this is abundant life, eternal life, and to him and to his whole family. I want to make a quick aside about the love of God. And I think maybe you'll be able to understand where I'm going with this, but in Japan, my dad is Japanese, um, they don't really use the word love. They use it very, very rarely. In fact, most of the time they just say, I like you. That's how they say it. That's kind of our equivalent of I love, I like you. A lot of times married couples will, say, will go maybe five or ten years without saying I love you to one another. And then in the U.S., we kind of have, I think, maybe a little bit the opposite problem where people will say, I love you. You know, you never met somebody. You give them a pizza coupon and, oh, you're the best. I love you. We kind of have the opposite problem in that sense. But I wanted to, to ask us, what, what is love? And, and to me, the thing I go to is a mother and her baby. How do we know the value of love, the reality of love, the depth of someone's love? And you see this with mothers and babies. And so I want to bring out a couple points. One, it's not earned. Love is not earned. What does a baby do to earn his love? I mean, it is cute, but I don't think that's quite enough in the case of how hard it is. Love, if it's, if it's going to be real love, it has to be costly, or it is costly. If you think about how many hours a mother stays up with her child, how much she gives. And third, it's reliable. Love is reliable, and it will even reach out and grab you. And of course, in Christ... We see all of these things in God, God's love. Now, did the official know all of these things? At that time, no. He, of course, he didn't know all those things. But that's something that he would learn as he goes through life. I also want to look at truth. How, as John said, did the glory of God, full of grace and truth, how was that revealed in his earthly ministry? Well, here, um, well, in John, in John 3, 33, John the Baptist says that those who believe, those who receive Christ, will testify that God is truth, that they will say God is truth. And that's the exact reaction that we have from this man when Christ says, go, your son will live. And everything that he had before that point, wanting to bring him down, leaves him. And he believes. He didn't expect that, but he believes. He saw that Jesus was the giver of life. That he was, as we hear here in John, the creator of all things. And that he brings healing to all that are healing, that are being healed. And then, in the next couple of verses, it says, he went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. I think that this is the next day. 
this man who had come to Christ as a miracle worker, then having the very glory of Christ revealed to this man, the peace of God, he leaves Christ. What is he thinking about? He believes Christ. I don't think this man, when he asks this question, is so much, he's not worried about the health of his child. He, he believed Christ that his son will be okay. But you know what he believes? I, I, I mean, this, is, this may be extra, but I like to think of this. When, the, when his servants come to him and say, your son reco- is recovering, it's almost as if he grabbed him and said, because he's been thinking about this, is, Christ, is Jesus the Christ? Did I meet the Christ? Tell me when. When did it happen? When did it happen? Was it that exact time? And I think he was expecting that answer, and that's the answer that he received. That's what I like to think. But in that sense, too, it's kind of sad that this man, it was confirmed to him that he had met the Christ. But Jesus was far from him at that point. Now, I don't know how they have all these details. Uh, This could be from the Holy Spirit, but I would like to think that maybe this man met them later and told them these details. But how amazing it is for him. The very truth of God. And last, uh, I just want to go back to that, the question about what is love and how can we see this love in God? Because love has to have truth. Because if, if someone says that they love you and they don't really know you, you might think, well, if you knew this about me, would you still love me? I think I've heard someone say, you know, we've been married for 30 or 40 years and they, they haven't left me yet. But the truth of the matter is that being married for 30 or 40 years says a lot about someone's love for you because they know you. They know you. So, so the love of God is that he knows us entirely. Again, I want to ask the question, what did this official know? What did this man know? He didn't know a lot of what, what I've been going over tonight at that moment. But what he did know is that he believed Jesus. He trusted in his word. And just as Christ speaks about in chapter 10, the sheep know his voice. We could think about the cross, the thief thief on the cross. What did he know? How much did he know about Jesus? I think for those especially who have been raised in the church, I think it can be easy for us to complicate the matter. But what do we really need to know about God but to trust all of his words? In conclusion, I just wanted to say that when I was studying this passage, I found myself, unfortunately, being a little frustrated with this man. It's a similar story as we have with Nicodemus, and for whatever reason, I'm not frustrated with Nicodemus and the woman at the well, but for whatever reason, I think because Christ grouped him as those who didn't believe and, but were only seeking the signs. But as I read this, it didn't take me long to realize that this, this is me, this is, this is us, that, that we try to earn what we think we need. We always try to add to the work of Christ. And that when Christ, when, when God talks to us, a lot of times we ignore it. But also by the grace of God, Christ found us. So I just want to ask you this in, in closing. Wherever you came from tonight, whatever you may be struggling with, just as this man was, I want to ask if you've seen Jesus Have you heard his voice? Have you looked to him? Because, like I said, we tend to complicate things, but it's really simple. We need to look at him, and we need to believe. And I think particularly we need to see his grace and his love. Because I've been speaking about love, 
And we know that Christ came for us. He came for you. You don't need to earn his love. In fact, you can't earn his love, just like a baby with its, with its mother. And his love was costly. He gave his life for it. He said, there's no greater love than to lay down your life for his friends, for one to lay down his life for his friends. He said that to the disciples and said, you are now my friends. His love is eternal and forceful, no matter how stubborn we are. And his love is perfect. He knows everything about you. There's nothing in the future that you could do that he wouldn't know about or something that you've hidden from others that he wouldn't know about. He knows all of that. His love will never change. So whatever burdens you have, stop trying to bear them and bring them to Christ. Repent and believe in him. What a Savior we have. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Father and our God, we come before you this evening, and we admit, Lord, that often we can be more than difficult to work with, and so we thank you for your redeeming work in our lives to focus our attention again on Christ. We pray that you forgive us again of all of our sins in his name alone. We pray. Amen.